The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. NVIDIA shares jump in extended trade after a 265% surge in fourth quarter revenue. The chip giant's CEO Jensen Huang sounds a bullish note on AI demand. Fundamentally, the conditions are excellent for continued growth. Calendar 24 to calendar 25 and beyond. Japan's Nikkei 225 cracking its all-time high, topping levels not seen since 1989 as chip sector plays rally on the back of NVIDIA's bumper results. Fed officials express concern over cutting rates too quickly amid worries over persistent inflation as Bank of America's CEO says the central bank is at risk of repeating mistakes. The air potential is actually to not bring rates down and normalize soon enough just like it was not to raise rates fast enough. Mercedes-Benz launches a share buyback program worth over $3 billion ahead of the German automaker's results this morning. We're going to hear from the Mercedes chair, Ola Schellenius, at 910 CET. And Danone's profit margin widens as Fullier sales growth comes in at the top end and the food giant hikes its dividend. We'll get an insight into the consumer goods sector with the Nestle CEO, Mark Schneider, 8.30 Central European time. That is exclusively on CNBC. Welcome to the show. NVIDIA shares rose as much as 10% in extended trade after the chipmaker crushed Wall Street's already elevated expectations. Net income for the quarter surged more than 750% to $12.3 billion, with revenues forecast to come in at $24 billion in the first quarter. That is well above analyst estimates. The CEO, Jensen Huang, told investors on the call that the sector stands at an inflection point. We guide one quarter at a time. But fundamentally, the conditions are excellent for continued growth. Calendar 24 to calendar 25 and beyond. And let me tell you why. We're at the beginning of two industry-wide transitions. And both of them are industry-wide. The first one is a transition from general to accelerated computing. Uh, general purpose computing, as you know, uh, is starting to run out of steam. And you could tell by the CSPs extending and many data centers, including our own for general purpose computing, extending the depreciation from four to six years. There's just no reason to update with more CPUs when you can't fundamentally and dramatically enhance its throughput like you used to. Well, I will show you the rest of the sector. Oh, I say some of the stocks are moving on the back of this elsewhere. You can see uh, Taiwan Semiconductor 1.6% higher. SK Hynix 4.4% in the green. Arjun joins us for more. Arjun, it's very easy to say everything is awesome on the back of this. Oh, clearly, the numbers looked extraordinary. The market reaction was stunningly positive as well. Is everything, and I know this is, sounds kind of almost curmudgeonly, but is everything as good as it looks? It seems that way, Steve. There was a slight blemish when we okay. look at the China 
uh, situation there. Uh, Jensen Huang on the call uh, talking about the fact that data center revenue declined significantly there due to uh, export restrictions put on by the US uh, to stop NVIDIA shipping its high-end chips to China. Uh, NVIDIA said it's created some of the chips to comply with restrictions there and now sampling some of those with customers. It expects a decline there again uh, in the current quarter and saying that uh, the percentage of revenue that China accounts for in the data center business, that's where those uh, key H100 chips are housed, uh, is mid-single digits. So that was probably the only blemish at this point. But when you look at the fundamental story going forward it all sounds uh, very good high demand uh, still supply constraint it gives Nvidia a lot of pricing power in this market uh, as well uh, and Jensen Huang again talking about believing that demand will remain strong through the year and we've heard it from the tech giants they're spending on capex this year in particular around AI I mean meta alone was talking about by uh, saying it's going to have around 350,000 h100 chips in its infrastructure by the end of this year so that just gives you a sense of of the you know, the companies that are buying these these uh, components. Can I just get into why this is so important? Because what we've seen on the broader stock market has been this AI rally. Mm. But for the S&P 500, a quarter of the index gained so far this year down to NVIDIA. So some significance here in how it performs. To me, what was interesting was the way it addressed the concerns of what comes next. There are fears around the double or triple ordering by some companies to get their hands on the chips. And if that demand fades, then, you know, what comes after that? And we saw uh, Huang trying to mention the other industries that have stepped up. And it's large-scale spending, isn't it? Uh, autos, financial services, healthcare. I thought that was fascinating in the, the multi-billions he was talking about. Because what we know, and you and I have been doing a lot of research heading into Mobile World Congress, that at this stage around the AI story, what is happening is that companies are ordering up on these chips to build out cloud services that they can sell to a whole host of customers, uh, allowing access broadly to AI. But there's another wave after that, isn't there, when it comes to industry-specific uses for AI? That's right. So the first wave we're seeing now is the Microsofts, Amazons, Metas and Googles of the world are buying these chips effectively to build up the AI capabilities in their cloud. You see that already with Microsoft selling these, these AI tools to, to its cloud customers. But you're right, the next wave is, is what are the industries that are going to begin to buy up these components as well. Now, some of these industries will rely in part on the cloud services provided by Microsoft and Amazon, etc. Uh, but part of that also is buying the chips. I think the big question is whether when this sort of first wave does fade, whether those other, other industries will pick up the slack and be able to, to propel NVIDIA to continue this growth. And I think that's still a question mark. And on top of that, not only uh, is it about those structural sort of changes that may happen, but also there, there is indeed rising competition uh, in this space in terms of the, the chips that are required to train a lot of these models with AMD into the market and also some of these, these so-called hyperscalers, the Microsofts and Amazon of these worlds, looking at designing okay. their own so semiconductors. I take on board your minor blemish on China, and, yeah. I, and I saw the commentary on that as well. Um, that, okay, so let's just park NVIDIA over there almost. The rest of the market rallying on the back of this, the rest of the chip sector rallying on the back of this, is that logical? Um, bearing in mind, this is an NVIDIA story. Their chips are proving better than the others. There's a comment here from Christina Patsinevelos, uh, one of our correspondents, who's talking about actually bad for AMD since its chips are thought to be better at interfencing. Now interfencing now 40% of day seven re revenues. So if NVIDIA is doing all these amazing things, and, and we'll take it that they are, given the fact the margin is 77%, so fantastic numbers there. 
Why is the rest of the market rallying on the back of NVIDIA? Because it's a good story about NVIDIA specifically rather than the rivals not catching up. Yeah, NVIDIA goes up, chips go up, all of them. Surely Uh, NVIDIA goes up, rivals suffer. Yeah, I mean, there's two things here. I thought that the the couple chip uh, we just saw, we saw TSMC uh, and we saw SK Hynix. Uh, on those uh, companies in particular, TSMC is, is the main manufacturer of NVIDIA chips. If NVIDIA is signaling strong demand for the rest of the year, that is a positive for TSMC. SK Hynix has had an interesting move over the past year. Uh, they have seen a big uptake of their memory. Uh, they are the second biggest memory uh, company after Samsung because of the memory required, again, in a lot of this training and AI application. So you see a rally on the back uh, of that as well. But AMD, I, I suspect the read there is, well, if there is some uh, sort of com- supply constraint on NVIDIA, there could be uh, companies also looking to introduce AMD components into the mix. Also a little bit of supply, supply diversification as well. But, you know, all chip firms are not created equal. And I think at the moment we are seeing sort of indiscriminate buying of chip names um, even well, when an but, NVIDIA... But not just chip names. I know Karen's coming back, but like yeah. every single market is rallying because <laughs> yeah. of this. The FTSE 100, and last time I looked, there's no standout FTSE 100 amazing players. Yeah. It's called up this morning. The yeah. DAX is called up. The CAC is called up. The MIB's called up. It's, all it's, on the back of NVIDIA. To me, it's the breadth you just <laughs> saw in those comments around autos, financials, healthcare, or spending on AI. The message from Google earlier in the year was that the implementers so would win. So market goes up because imp- other companies have got to spend no, more. No, the implementers you are seeing... Uh, a whole host of industries now. And if they can maximize productivity returns, revenue gains on the back of AI, then it is a broader AI story. It's not just NVIDIA that's winning here. You sound here. like the laconic response from the Spartans. <laughs> if, yeah. if. But th- this is it. It's the, it's the euphoria here around AI that it will touch, or the promise at least, that it will touch every industry. No matter what. It will cost every industry. <laughs> and it will cost them a lot. <laughs> uh, and it can't, it can't all be winners. No. I think the, the, the other part here around AI, the promise is AI will improve efficiency, help profitability, etc. Whether that plays okay. out or not. All right. Well, look, it's unambiguously good for NVIDIA at the moment, and I see yeah. some upgrades going on as we're speaking. Um, let's get to and have a look at the Asian market follow-through, uh, I guess, in part because of NVIDIA. Arabile? Yeah, so, well, that certainly is the play as well here. Some of the chip uh, and semiconductor plays in the space are also on the up then, Steve. I mean, we had just made note of uh, some of them before uh, the conversation. Of course, Adventus, more than 7% higher. TSMC also managing to gain 1.6% as well. SK Hynix more than 4% to the good. So an overall positive sentiment across the Asian market. But we wanted to focus more specifically on the Nikkei 225 at this stage. That stock up. Big 2% gain then and past 39,000 points then. So moving past its 34-year high, levels not seen since 1989, certainly has been on a tear of late. And specifically, just wanted to look at just this year alone then. You can see that the Nikkei has gained uh, quite significantly as well. So major moves on that market. So we'll continue to check in on the Asian market. But coming up on the show, we've got earnings season, of course, continuing here in Europe. We'll be focusing on Nestle and AXA. That comes straight after the break. Plus, Mercedes-Benz unveils a 3 billion euro share buyback. We'll hear from the CEO, Ola Kalnias. That's later in the show. And stay tuned for more of our earnings interviews. Later this hour, we'll be speaking to the CEO of Heidelberg Materials, Dominic van Achten. That interview is coming up at 7.30 CET.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. We're setting up the numbers from Nestle for the full year and uh, due to cross any moment. But what we saw in the nine months, organic growth was up 7.8%. Pricing uh, during the line share of the heavy lifting here up 8.4%. But uh, real internal growth, that was down 0.6%. It does beg the question whether we are seeing some demand destruction now because of the stickiness of prices that we've witnessed from big food companies. Crossing Nestle misses its full year organic sales estimates. That is the line here as uh, it has posted numbers. Full year free cash flow. 10.4 billion Swissy versus estimates of 10.3 billion Swissy, so slightly above on the free cash flow line. On the revenue, for you revenue at 93 billion Swissy, the estimate was for 93.6, so uh, a touch under when it comes to this number. Organic growth, 7.2% versus estimates of 7.4%, so we're seeing a slide here versus expectations and also down on that nine-month number of 7.8% as it crosses at 72 today for the full year. In terms of the full year EPS, 4.24 Swissy versus 4.44. So again, light on the full year EPS number. And uh, the adjusted EPS is at 4.8 Swissy versus 4.87. So on that number, we are seeing uh, close to the range, but again, not good enough. So a number multiple misses coming through. The outlook uh, for the four-year organic growth of 4% is the number now hitting the tape as well. So the four-year real internal growth down 0.3%. That is, again, showing some slippage, but not as deep as the fall of 0.6% that we had at the nine-month level. We are going to be getting into the detail around this and uh, we've got a, a key speaker later on, the, the CEO, Mark Schneider, joining us later on the show. Tune in for that exclusive interview at 8.30 CET. Mercedes-Benz announces a share buyback program of up to 3 billion euros on top of a 4 billion euro repurchase announced last year. The luxury car maker is set to report fourth quarter results today and we'll hear from the CEO at, at 10 past 9 Central European Time. French insurer AXA has launched a share buyback of up to 1.6 billion euros and hiked its dividend 16% on the back of higher underlying earnings and net realised capital gains. Joining us now is Thomas Bubel, who is the group CEO of AXA. Thomas, thank you very much for joining us today. Just flesh out the latest quarter, how it played out, given you've got the higher distributions today. Yes, good morning, Karen. Very happy to join you. We are very pleased with these results, um, and they also mark the end of uh, the uh, existing plan driving progress. Um, a great progression in the revenue, great progression in the results, which also um, led us to the uh, effect uh, that we um, are proposing to the annual general meeting, a uh, very good progression in our dividend. When it comes to uh, financial targets, so uh, you set new ones, underlying earnings per share and a compound annual growth rate uh, seen between 6 to 8% for 2023 to 2026. What sort of visibility do you have out over that time frame, given that we do have a fairly volatile economic and geopolitical environment at this stage? 
It's absolutely true that uh, working in these environments is not easy. I mean, we have seen it over the last three years, and I believe we will see it again over the next three years. But we have a uh, very balanced model. We have about 50% commercial insurance, 50% retail insurance, very uh, diversified uh, geographically. And so we have a very good visibility uh, over the last years, what can work in a difficult environment. And because this plan has been built up bottom up with the entities, um, we are very sure that we can achieve this. Thomas, I can't help thinking that there's a little bit of a nod to this is as good as it gets in terms of the premium increases, in terms of the business profile at the moment, given the fact that your 2023 return on equity was 14.9%. And actually your target for the next period, 2024 to 2026, is pretty much the same level, 14 to 16% as well. So is there an admission in there that actually conditions at the moment are fantastic and this is pretty much as good as it gets? So look, we've been rebuilding the company over the last eight years. If you look uh, what AXA was 2016 and what is it today, uh, it's something very different because we've moved away from financial risk more towards technical risk and uh, the results show that this new model is working. And so the aim of the next plan is very much to scale up, to strengthen the core and scale up. And therefore the return level that we have is the right return level. What is important now going forward is to get more growth, uh, get uh, continue to work on our technical and operational excellence, but also to cement further our role as an actor in society. Yeah, what about the role of insurance and the broader sector, sorry, broader central banking, broader environment? Because even central bankers now, Thomas, have started noticing the extraordinary rise in premiums across the globe from yourself and indeed the rest of the sector as well. So is there a, a danger that by actually exacerbating inflationary impetuses uh, and impulses, actually you're creating a problem for the broader economy by keeping interest rates higher for longer? Look, obviously, uh, these premium increases reflect uh, also the increases of uh, more risk around us. And if you look, uh, you mentioned natural catastrophes. If you look around us, uh, the frequency has significantly increased. And in order to be able uh, to provide insurance going forward, um, the mechanism needs to work uh, with the right level of premium, given uh, the events that we see. So uh, it is clear that uh, we need to think together with regulators um, and uh, also with uh, with uh, with with our customers, how can we make sure that we do uh, offer a solid insurance scheme uh, going forward? Which uh, these discussions uh, are going on. Interest rates uh, do play uh, an important role, but whether interest rates are high or low, uh, our model can adjust to it and has adjusted to it in the past. For me, the question is more: How do we deal with these new risks uh, that are far more prevalent and far more frequent? than they were 10 years ago. And insurers are now very much at the heart of this discussion, very much at the heart of playing a much bigger role in society than uh, when I joined the insurance industry about 20 years ago. And I get that, Thomas, and it's a very important change to the modelling looking at uh, the changing climate. But, but, but then on that basis, is, what's your combined ratio on exposure to NatCat then? On, because it seems to me that it's still very low. You're very happy. It's significantly away from 100% for the sector as a whole. So although you talk about increased climate risks as well, is the sector actually paying out more and experiencing more risk because of that? So yes, the sector is clearly experiencing more risk, but the sector has also, as we have done, 
uh, really thought about how to um, position themselves in terms of which exposure to be taken and not. And what you can see is that over time, the sector has taken less exposure um, and has been shifting towards pushing prevention more. Because if we want to make sure that climate remains insurable, we need to help our customers to prevent the next claim. And so you see the shift uh, dialing back on uh, the exposure and shifting more towards prevention, prevention help, or helping our customers. Thomas, let me touch on one of the categories a lot of people care about, and that is property and casual insurance. The revenues here on a comparable basis up 7%. What sort of premium increases can we expect in this category and what sort of revenue expectations as a result are you looking at over the next year? So look, I, I, I can't tell you what the premium increases will be because it depends very much on what is happening around us. And um, what we've seen in the past that um, uh, natural catastrophes and in particular smaller events like wildfires, uh, drought um, uh, and flooding, local floodings, are increasing in frequency, which means that um, we need to work more on prevention, helping our customers uh, to better build their factories, to better build uh, uh, their houses in order to avoid the next uh, the next uh, catastrophe when it comes to a flood or drought and so on. And we are very much focused now on helping our customers to protect themselves better against that. Thomas, I take your point here, the social point that you're raising around the role of insurance companies working with customers. But the reality is you have a retreat taking place when it comes to insurance coverage because of the exposure risk thanks to climate. So in the meantime, doesn't that just leave people uninsured, underinsured, one of those two categories? So our key mission is to help our customers uh, to be better situated in that uh, in, against climate risk. And what you see is clearly that uh, the industry as such had to dial back uh, in terms of protection because uh, you can't carry all this burden. And therefore, we said, look, in order for climate risk to be insurable, we need to link insurance to prevention. And so today, for example, we uh, are working a lot with our customers in helping them uh, to better anticipate and to better prepare. Uh, I give you an example. If a steel producer knows that uh, they have to produce and carry steel uh, on the Rhine uh, in summer and the Rhine has uh, low water levels, we need to help that customer now to find uh, alternative uh, ways of um, transportation in order not to suffer from a business interruption. This, there are plenty examples of examples where you can help the customer not to have a claim. Thomas, I can't believe my co uh, colleagues left this one for me, but uh, AI is du jour. It is the zeitgeist as well. Uh, surely uh, the advent of AI into your business is meaning you're going to cut costs even uh, pretty aggressively. Uh, and dare I say it, cut some personnel. So look, I was waiting for the AI question and it's interesting that it comes so late in our discussion. Yes, AI for us uh, is a great opportunity, but not an opportunity to cut costs because I see uh, the uh, the leverage of AI somewhere very different. And if you see our new plan is very much based on uh, making sure that we're using AI. We work a lot with unstructured data. So you have the report of the fire engineer, um, the report of the garage when a car is repaired, all of this data today is in text form. If we manage to use this data to better price, to better understand the risk, we can also help our customers more. And I see the angle of using AI for our industry much more there 
in better risk management rather than uh, in reducing costs in call centers and so on. Thomas, just quickly, how much of that are you building out yourself? Are you required to order chips, for instance, and uh, train up uh, large language models? So look, we, we are not a tech company, we're an insurance company, we want to remain an insurance company and therefore what we need to do is we need to deliver the business insight of AI, but we are working in partnership uh, in order to build the algorithms and make sure that uh, we get to the uh, uh, desired results. We don't need to buy uh, or build chips. This is a different industry. Thomas, really good to uh, get uh, a whole host of views from you. Thank you very much indeed. We do appreciate you updating us. Thomas uh, Bubel, who is the CEO of AXA. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.